We're going to begin at verse 13. And let's read it together, shall we? Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Those of you who have been participating in our online Bible study on Wednesday nights know that the focus of this study for the last several weeks has been the kingdom of God. This, this theme of the kingdom is a silver thread that runs throughout the entire Bible, all the way from Genesis to Revelation. If you start looking for it, you'll find that theme in every book of the Bible. The primary message of Jesus was the message of the kingdom. All the miracles he performed were dramatic illustrations of the power of the kingdom that had arrived on this earth. When Jesus taught his followers to pray, you remember he instructed them to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. What we know as the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' comprehensive teaching about the nature of the kingdom and what it is like to be a citizen of his kingdom. Now, for the last several Sundays, there's a critical question I've been trying to answer for those who are followers of Jesus. It's the question, how shall we live? You remember that I began by talking about living the transformed life. The next Sunday, I talked about living the grace life. Last week, I talked about living the sanctified life. And when you stop and look at them, each one of those messages is really a, a piece or a part of this larger message of the kingdom. Each one of those messages defines a particular aspect or characteristic of what it means to live the kingdom life. Well, today, I want to focus in specifically on this idea of the kingdom. The subject is too large. Uh, th th there are volumes that have been written about it, so I can't hope to cover the entire field in one short message. So what I want to do is narrow the focus and highlight three qualities about the kingdom from verse 17 of our text, which says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And the first thing I want you to see about the kingdom life you are called to live as a follower of Jesus has to do with rulership. The very fact that it is described as a kingdom implies that there is a king. 
A kingdom is quite simply an area or a realm or a sphere over which there is a ruling monarch. Every kingdom has laws that govern the behavior of those who live in that kingdom. Every kingdom has boundaries that define the scope of that kingdom. And the question is, what kingdom are you living in? The better question is, who's your king? Who's calling the shots in your life? To whom is your loyalty and submission? The reality is that everyone is subject to a ruling authority. You may call yourself free, and you are, but I want to suggest you are subject to a ruling authority. For some people, their king is pleasure. They devote themselves to its pursuit. Nothing is off limits when it comes to satisfying their desire for pleasure. They give themselves without reservation to whatever will create this euphoric feeling. Some people bow their knee to the king of power and prestige and position. Whatever helps them get ahead, whatever puts their name out front, whatever causes others to look up to them. No sacrifice is too great, not family, not friendships, not personal health, not integrity, as long as it gains them the power and prestige and position they crave. Then there are people who are loyal subjects of possessions. They always have to have the latest greatest. <laughs> they don't try to keep up with the Joneses. They feel compelled to one-up the Joneses. It doesn't matter if the credit cards are maxed out. It doesn't matter if they work themselves to exhaustion. They find their value and their sense of worth in the, the widgets and the toys and the possessions they acquire. Now, maybe I haven't described your particular king yet, but the truth is you are bowing your knee to some monarch today. It may be your health or your wealth or your appearance or a relationship Someone or something has your loyalty and your allegiance. The kingdom life you're called to live as a believer has a king. If you are a true follower of Jesus, anybody call yourself a follower of Jesus today? Come on, come on. That's most of you. We can fix it for the rest of you. We can help you out before this service is over. If you are a true follower of Jesus, there is only one person worthy to be acknowledged as king, and that is the Lord Jesus. When I was trying to think of a way to describe the magnificence of this king, I realized I couldn't do any better than Dr. S.M. Lockridge did in his sermon titled, That's My King. In that message, Dr. Lockridge said, the Bible says, my king is a seven-way king. He's the king of the Jews. That's a racial king. He's the king of Israel. That's a national king. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. 
He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. David said, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his shoreless supply. No barrier can hinder him from pouring out his blessings. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. He's the greatest phenomenon that ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's the sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands in the solitude of himself. He's awesome. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the supreme problem in higher criticism. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the cardinal necessity of spiritual religion. He's the miracle of the age. He's the superlative of everything good that you choose to call him. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and to tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the leper. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent, and he beautifies the meek. My king is the king. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring to wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the road of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. His office is manifold. His promise is sure. His light is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy. And his burden is light. Oh, I wish I could describe him to you. But he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him. And you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king, I'm telling you. That's my king. Hallelujah. Go ahead and praise him if that's your king today. Praise God, praise God. 
excuse me while I shout just a minute. Hallelujah. Now listen, too many are trying to start with the benefits and the blessings and the boundaries of the kingdom. But if you're going to live the kingdom life, it starts with the king. It starts with rulership. Well, then this verse talks about relationship. It, it seems the church at Rome to which the apostle was writing was having a controversy between those who were convicted about abstaining from certain food and drink as well as observing certain ceremonial holy days and those who were exercising their liberty to not observe the traditional things concerning eating and drinking and observing holy days. And this disagreement between the groups was threatening to tear the young church apart. The issue, understand this, the issue wasn't over essentials to the faith. It wasn't a heaven or hell issue. Rather, it was over traditions that had been observed by the Jews but were foreign to the Gentiles. So when the apostle describes and defines the kingdom in which followers of Jesus are called to live, he first of all talks about what the kingdom is not. He says the kingdom is not a list of external rules. It is not eating and drinking. When you get right down to it, that's what religion is. It's a list of rules. Religion is man's effort to try to become acceptable to God by the way he acts, by keeping a list of what to do and what not to do. And I find a lot of people are really into religion. Even in the Christian faith, there are a lot of people whose focus is on their particular brand. <clears throat> you know, some are proud of being Pentecostal part of the church of God or the assemblies of God or the Foursquare church or the church of God in Christ. Others are proud that they're Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian or Catholic. Just pick your denominational stripe. Let me just put your mind at ease today and tell you there aren't going to be any church of God people in heaven. There aren't going to be any Catholics or Baptists, or Methodists, or Anglicans, or Presbyterians in heaven. Mm -mm. The only people who are going to be in heaven are those who are born again, those who have a relationship with Jesus. We're not going to have a section over in the corner of glory reserved for the Pentecostals. Every time I read about what's going on around the throne of God, it just talks about a throng of people. We're not cordoned off, and there's no physical distancing going on. <laughs> this week, I read something by J. David Hoke about the difference between religion and relationship. He writes, religion produces churches full of hypocrites who feel the need to put on a front so that people will not know the real struggles they're enduring. Instead of setting us free to serve the Lord, religion puts us into bondage. It fills us with guilt and finally with futility because deep down inside we know we can never measure up to God's rules. 
Christianity, on the other hand, is not a religion at all. It is a relationship between a person and the living God of the universe. Instead of being an attempt instigated by man to reach God, that's religion. It is the grace of God attempting to reach man. What we see is not man ascending the loftiest peaks of a majestic mountain to meditate as he sits close to God, that's religion, but the Son of God leaving his majestic throne of glory to come down to be made into a man. We do not have to ascend to God for he has already descended to us in Jesus. Listen, listen Jesus did not come to earth to get you into heaven. Jesus came to earth to get heaven into you. That's what it means to live the kingdom life. The kingdom is not eating and drinking. It isn't rules and religion. It is a life lived in relationship with Jesus. Righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now this life involves both a change in character and a change in conduct. And I want to tell you that's the order that it should follow. Character, then conduct. Character, then conduct. And this is the opposite of the way religion thinks. Religion says, change the way you act first, and then you'll be acceptable to God. But relationship says, you come to God as a sinner, just like you are. Admit that you're a sinner. Repent of your sin, and then he starts changing you from the inside out. Religion starts on the outside and tries to work in. Relationship starts on the inside and works out. That's why Jesus said in John 3, verse 7, you must be born again. Did you know that you can be born Jewish? You can be born a Muslim. You can be born a Hindu. But you can't be born a Christian. It doesn't matter who your parents or your grandparents are. It doesn't matter what your church background is or how many generations of your family have been part of that church. You're not born a Christian. And you aren't a Christian because you go to church or because you participate in ministry. That's what Jesus was talking about when he said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The kingdom life can't be lived by keeping rules. It can only be lived when there is a transformation, a new beginning that is described as a spiritual new birth. When you are born again, your character is changed and your nature is changed. See, just as my natural birth causes me to inherit certain characteristics from my biological parents, you know, one of the reasons why my ears are big is because my daddy had big ears. And his daddy before him had big ears. And some of you are thinking, I wasn't really paying attention to that until you said it. And now I'm starting to notice you've got big old Dumbo ears. <laughs> but 
The reason my nose is shaped the way it is is because if you look at pictures, you can see my daddy's nose is shaped that way. Of course, his had a couple of extra uh, parts to it because he was in fights and got it broken a couple of times, you know, that I, I thankfully have so far been able to, uh, to avoid. But there are all kinds of things about me that are reminiscent of my biological parents, my father, my mother. You, you can trace them back to them. And just as my natural birth caused me to inherit certain characteristics from my biological parents, even so, when you are born of the Spirit, you inherit spiritually the character and the nature of your heavenly Father. The test of a true follower of Jesus is, has your character, your nature ever been changed? You know, when I was a young boy, we lived in these small rural towns. In and around our house, we usually had several animals. Mom usually had a cat. Dad always had some hunting dogs. I remember one time, my dad raised some pigs. Whenever I, I don't know about you, whenever I see a pig, I immediately think barbecue ribs, (laughs) ham sandwiches, pork chops, bacon, Whenever I see a cat, I immediately think, oh, no, a cat. Really? A cat? Now, don't any of you cat lovers send me any hate mail. I'm not reading it. Those, those pigs, when we first got them, they were little piglets. They were the, some of the cutest little piglets running around, running around in the pen, wallowing in the mud. Here's one thing I know about pigs. You can take that pig out of the mud hole, put him in a bathtub, Wash him and scrub him and clean him really good. Shampoo him. Dry him with a blow dryer. They have a little perfume behind his ear. Put a blue ribbon around his neck. And you can put that little piglet on display in the living room and say, look at that. That's a cleaned up pig. That's a reformed pig. That's what religion can do. But as soon as the front door is open and that pig sees that mud hole, you know what he's going to do? He's going to run just as fast as he can right back into the mud. And the reason is because it's the nature of a pig to wallow in the mud. Now, my mom's cat was the exact opposite. First of all, that cat would do everything within its power to stay out of the mud hole. If you were to go and just drop it in the mud hole, you know what it's going to do? It's going to tiptoe out of the mud as quickly as possible, and then it's going to sit down and start cleaning itself. You know why? That's its nature. I'm telling you today, if your character has never been changed, your behavior won't be changed. But when your character has been changed, there will be a change in your behavior. Listen. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus, but spend most of your time wallowing in the moral filth and the sinful mud out there in the world, and you're having a grand time, and you have no guilt or remorse whatsoever, you're not a follower of Jesus. You may be a religious person, but if you're at home in the mud, your nature has never been changed. Being saved doesn't mean you won't sometimes find yourself in the mud, but you won't like it. 
and you won't stay there. Instead, like the prodigal son, you'll get up and you'll say, I'm going back to my father because I'm not at home in this situation. That is, this is not my nature. That's what salvation is. It starts with a change of your character, being born again, that results in you changing your conduct the way you act. The kingdom of God isn't about religion or about rules. The kingdom of God is about relationship. It starts with the word righteousness. Notice that each of these words starts with your character, and then it influences your conduct. This idea of righteousness starts with your character being declared right before God. This kind of righteousness can't be earned by your own ability. It has to be imputed to you by the grace of God as you put your faith in Jesus and surrender your life to him. That's what it means in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. Once you have done that, you are truly born again. And now when God looks at you, he sees you through the filter of the righteousness of his son. And he then declares you righteous. Your character is transformed and you are declared to be in right standing with God. Once that character is changed, then it begins to affect your conduct. Your conduct changes so that you desire to live right before God and you desire to live right before others. I want to tell you, if you don't desire to live right before others, your character has not been changed. If you have no desire to live a righteous, holy life, you need to go back. You need to be born again. This doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. It doesn't mean you're not going to find yourself in the mud every now and then. But it does mean that you're not going to stay there because that's not where you belong. That's not where you're comfortable. Your character has changed, and now your conduct begins to reflect your new nature. You know, back in 1960, the Ohio Art Company came out with a toy called the Etch-A-Sketch. Anybody remember the Etch-A-Sketch? I love that toy. In fact, in preparation for this message, I had Betsy get one for me to bring up here and show you. Do you remember the Etch-A-Sketch? You know, one, one knob, this knob right over here, creates a vertical line, goes up and down, and, and the other knob creates a horizontal line back and forth. And, 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 and with this, you can doodle, you can make lines and squiggles. I used to, I used to spend hours with this drawing. I'd, I'd draw trains and, 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 and cars and, and trees and fields and stuff like that. I, I actually got to be pretty good with it, you know. I've, I've seen people do amazing things and draw amazing pictures with this. Well, here's, here's my favorite part of this toy. When you're trying to create something and it's just not turning out the way you want, anybody ever had that happen? All you have to do, turn this thing over and shake it. And when you turn it back, it's all erased and you have a fresh start. Did you know that the Bible has an Etch-A-Sketch verse? It does. It's 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When, you, when you've made a mess of your life, you just come before the Lord with your sins and your failings and your problems and you say, God, here, this is the mess I made of it. I'm calling upon you to forgive me and cleanse me and God just shakes you and cleanses you of all unrighteousness. 
You can't live perfectly, but you can live clean before the Lord. That's the kingdom of life. It's a life of righteousness. I got to hurry. Oh, my goodness, my time is up, and I'm only about two-thirds of the way finished with this message. Will y'all fasten your seatbelts and hang on? Y'all can't shout to the end, all right? Then the word of the Lord says the kingdom life is peace. Again, this begins with your character. You have peace with God. That happens as a result of your salvation. That's what it means in Romans 5 and 1 when it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because you have made peace with God, then you can claim the peace of God. This is your place of security. Peace with God is your place of salvation. Peace of God is your place of security. That's what it says in Philippians 4 and 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This peace isn't just the absence of conflict. It is wholeness of being. It is completeness. It is tranquility in the midst of problems. It's a settled assurance that no matter what comes and no matter what goes, you're going to be okay because the Lord is with you. You're anchored in Him and none of these things move you. This peace is beyond comprehension to those who are around you. They'll see the storm you're in and wonder how you can manage to be so calm. They'll wonder how you manage to continue to function. They'll wonder how you hold it all together when everything around you is falling apart. I tell you, it's because you're living the kingdom life. You're declared righteous by your heavenly father. His presence is with you every moment of every day, so there is no need to fear. There's no need to be anxious. There's no need to worry. You have a quiet confidence and a settled assurance of his promise that everything is going to work for your good because you love the Lord and you're called according to his purpose. That's when you claim the promise of Isaiah 26 and 3. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. That's when you claim the promise of Jesus in John 14 and 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled nor let it be fearful. That's when you have have peace. Then when you have peace with God and the peace of God, you can start to seek the peace with others. That's what verse 19 of Romans chapter 14 means when it says, so then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. When Paul writes to this church in Rome, he's saying, look, I know that you disagree on some of these non-essential issues, but when you're living the kingdom life in the power of the Holy Spirit, you don't have to agree in order to live in love and in peace with that other believer. Come on, somebody. If you have liberty, don't flaunt it and potentially cause a weaker brother or sister to stumble. If you have a conviction, don't try to make your conviction a universal for everybody. Stop quarreling with one another over issues that are not essential to your faith. Keep the unity of the Spirit. Live in love. Stay united against the real enemy of your soul. Last point. We're moving along now. Living the kingdom of life has to do with rulership. It has to do with relationship. Finally, I want you to see that it results in rejoicing. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, here it is, and joy in the Holy Spirit. You know, David sang in Psalm 16, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Jesus said in John 15 and 11, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Under the rulership of Jesus, living in right relationship with Jesus and with others in the body of Christ, it results in a life of rejoicing. You know, I made up my mind a long time ago 
that I'm not going to let anybody steal my joy. And I've found it's easy to be joyful when things are going well. But when the joy of the Lord really shines is when things are going bad, but you still make the choice to rejoice. I want to tell you that when you don't feel like rejoicing, that's when you ought to make the choice to rejoice. Watch this. You can act your way into a feeling a whole lot better than you can feel your way into an action. Somebody ought to just tweet that out and, you know, put it, put it out there. Before I finish up this message today, I just feel like I need to release some joy into somebody's life. You may have walked into this building or you may be watching online and feel like there's this gray, gloomy cloud hovering over you. Life may not have turned out the way you planned. You may have every reason to complain and to weep and to mourn. I want to tell you that I have come to release kingdom life to you today. I've come not to pray over you, but I've come to release a spirit of joy today. Here's what I want to tell you according to Isaiah 61, verses 1, 2, and 3. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. I'm telling you right now, by the authority of God's word and the spirit of God that is at work in my life to say to you, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me right now to release joy into your life. Receive joy. Receive the joy of the Lord. Re Receive his joy. That joy isn't necessarily going to change your circumstances, but it will change you in the midst of your circumstances. And I just want, before I get out of this pulpit today, I want anybody who will receive that word and receive the release of that joy, I just want you to stand to your feet right now. I want you to open your mouth and give God praise. I want you to rejoice in the Lord, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Come on, rejoice in Him today. The more you rejoice, the stronger you'll get. I don't think you heard me. I said, the more you rejoice, the stronger you'll get. Pastor, I don't feel like rejoicing. I didn't ask if you felt it. I said, go ahead and do it and let the feelings follow. Go ahead and rejoice in the Lord today.